Many years ago, when the planet Krypton, home of a race of supermen, exploded in space, the sole survivor was an infant boy who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's now playing Superman Movie Retrospective Series! Man, this is gonna be good! Hosted by Stuart. Any more at home like you? Uh, not really, no. I didn't think so. Arnie! You tell me that I'm brilliant? Charismatic! Fiendishly gifted! Uh... <laughs> Try twisted. And Jacob. You're a dreamer. A sick, twisted dreamer. Your plan couldn't possibly work. And these three new arrivals bring destruction in their wake. These people have such powers, nothing can stop them. Now that you know, I think you should know it all. Tell me everything, starting with crystals. Can you read my mind? If so, you already know this podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Holy skokeswit! Listener discretion is advised. Bring it on! There are questions to be asked. And it is time for you to do so. Here in this, this fortress of solitude, we shall try to find the answers together. Today we're discussing Superman, starring Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman, Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, and directed by Richard Donner. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I like pink very much. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob, your host of Steel. And here we are. We are in the big screen. We are in theaters. We're at least in the 70s. We're talking about the Superman that has defined all Superman to come. Superman, man, 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 where are you? Are you Superman, man, man? Do you remember that one? It was right in the disco era. I don't know if it was inspired by this movie or not, but when I think of themes, that's the one I always think of. I remember that song. I think you and I are the only two who do. I thought it was a song (laughs) about Superman in the 70s. I had it on a cassette and played it to the end, thinking it was a song by Lois Lane calling for help, but... (laughs) No, it's by Seely B and the Buzzy Bunch. Thank you, because I've been looking for that on iTunes. You try searching for Superman song. You get Pocket Full of Kryptonite by the Spin Doctors. You get I'm No Superman. You get Five for Fighting. There's a lot of Superman songs, but I cannot find that disco one. It's better than the spoken word that Margot Kidder does for Can You Read My Mind, I'll tell you that. Well, there was also a single release. Somebody did do a singing cover of Can You Read My Mind? Yeah, I figured it had to be. It's begging for a musical translation when they do it. We'll talk about it. Yes, I will talk lots about it. But yes, Superman 1978. My parents tell me they took me to see this in theaters. All I know is I don't have a memory of my life without this movie in it. 
I'm right there with you, Arnie. There's a few films from my childhood that I remember deeply, and this is one of them. I had a copy of this on VHS before. It was long popular to own movies on tape. I mean, that's when they cost hundreds of dollars if you wanted to own a film. I don't know if it was a copy from TV or where it came from, but this is something that was in the VCR. Excuse me, the Betamax often as a child. I remember running up and down aisles as Superman in the theaters after seeing this. Wow. I hate to be the kryptonite to this show, but I remember this from childhood, and I remember not really liking it. I was bored during Superman the movie. I remember sitting in the movie theater and wondering when was he going to be putting on the blue and red suit. To me, at five, six years old, my attention span is such that I don't really want all this backstory, this love story, the pratfalls, the comedy. I was too young when I saw this movie to appreciate the level at which it was working. I wanted Superman to fly around and punch things, and he barely does that in this movie. This is a movie about his origin and about the people that he knows with very little. The climax, the villain, or almost an afterthought. And that was a real problem for me back then. Now, how I'll feel about it now? We'll have to see. I have not seen this movie since 1983. I'm quite certain that I haven't seen it post-Superman 3. I, like Jacob, had a video copy of this VHS taped off HBO that I wore out as a young child. I watched this all the time, and then I stopped. Like I said last podcast, I was watching Superman and other media, but found him to be kind of a bland character, not a lot of depth with a invincible man. And so I hadn't revisited this until, of all things, the now defunct HD DVD format. When I bought my Xbox 360 with the HD DVD drive, they gave me this movie for free in the extended cut. And remembering loving it as a kid and Marjorie had the same feeling we sat back and watched it and that was the first time in my life Stuart I felt what you just said I didn't remember it being quite so elongated but I kind of blamed the extended cut for it and hadn't gone back to it I did pick up that blu-ray box set of the Superman films when it came out it was really cheap and I knew we'd be getting to him someday I busted the shrink wrap off the set just for this retrospective, and this is my first time seeing it in at least five or six years. This is one I visited over and over throughout the years. One of the first DVDs I owned, one of the first Blu-rays I owned. Until The Dark Knight, this was the number one superhero film for me. This was the one to beat if you wanted to have that number one spot. This is how ingrained this film is into me, how much I love this movie. It really took that Christopher Nolan and Heath Ledger and Christian Bell to finally convince me there was a better superhero movie than Superman the movie. Really? Not even Superman 2, because the one thing that I always equate with Superman the movie is Superman 2 is right there with Empire Strikes Back and The Godfather 2 as one of those rare sequels that best the original, according to the majority of people. We'll see next week. That is another loved film from childhood, one that I watched maybe almost as often as this one. There's a few things that bug me in it, even when I was younger. So we'll find out next week. But for me, yeah, this was the standard for decades for me.
And if we don't all come to the same conclusion that it's the very best superhero movie ever made, can we at least agree it's the first legit comic book movie ever made by a studio? Sure, we've done earlier things like the Batman TV show movie, and last week we did Mold Men, but truly, this is the first time that the studios gambled on spending big bucks on a superhero property. I mean, it's funny to think about now, but back in 1977-78, it was a highly uncommercial idea to put superheroes on the movie screen. Well, you could thank Batman for that because that campy atmosphere completely tainted comics. The comics became campy to draw in the Batman television audience and then after that fad faded, it's all they could see superheroes as was more Batman. You say studios made an investment to see this? You couldn't be more wrong. The studio, Warner Brothers, didn't put forward a dime when the movie was started. The producers, who we will be talking a lot about, the Salkins, went to Warner Brothers, said, we want to make the Superman movie, and Warner's like, we don't see any profit in it, but here's what we'll do. We'll let you use the character. You take your own money and make this movie, and if you succeed in making it, we'll distribute it in North America for money. Wow. How different. How things have changed in the world in the time between then and now. I mean, now you spit on the comic book paper and they'll turn it into a $200 million franchise. I just feel like there isn't a comic book character they wouldn't dare. Superman, the most famous property that probably has ever existed, maybe Batman, it's arguable, but truly one of the titans of superhero lore, and he can't even get a break from Warner Brothers. That is hilarious. I think you look at the times, though. You look at where cinema had been during the late 60s, throughout the 70s. You get Scorsese coming along. You get The Godfather coming along. Who wants to see a Boy Scout in red and blue pajamas flying around on screen? We had Star Wars. We had Rocky. We had that return to the underdogs and these fantasy films. But that was not the trend of cinema in the 70s. It was starting to be. I mean, with Jaws, things got a little bit more populous, but I'll give you this much. We didn't have the stars to play Superman. There were no Supermen on movie screen. Our lead actors were all real intense, strange-looking character actors that became stars. We did not have perfect Adonis-looking movie stars the way we do now. Well, also, Jacob, you say we had Star Wars. This movie came out in 78. Star Wars came out in 77. This movie was well into production before Star Wars hit, before Close Encounters hit. This was one of the films that really ushered in the sci-fi blockbuster film. But, Stuart, to what you said earlier, you said Superman is DC's number one, arguably maybe Batman. 20 years ago, nobody would have said arguably maybe Batman. They just would have said Superman is number one. What made Superman number one? This movie franchise. What made Batman arguably number one? His movie franchise that started in 89 and really blew up here in this past decade. It is the multimedia franchises that make heroes into what they are. You go, Superman! Oh my god, how could they not do Superman? We saw Mole Men. You know why they could not do Superman. I think 20 years from now, somebody would be like, Iron Man, how could they not make a movie about Iron Man? Because that movie made Iron Man a mainstream thing, whereas before Robert Downey Jr. was like, Iron who? 
Uh, to be fair, there were cartoons. The Super Friends had been on long before this movie got launched. Awareness of who Superman was, I think, was still pretty high. He had certainly more pop culture awareness than Green Lantern or X-Men. Well, you say Super Friends. I mean, The Flash had his own cartoon as well. I'd say, yeah, you'd put him up there with Batman, but also... Spider-Man and Hulk took a long time to get off the ground. They had cartoons. Hell, Iron Man had a cartoon, if that's going to be your barometer. But what translates from Kitty Fair on Bozo in the mornings to a blockbuster film? That takes a bit of vision, especially in the 70s when, again, everyone's memory of superheroes was Adam West doing the Batman. Yeah, I'm sure that that was a hard hurdle to get over. So how did they do it? Who got behind this? And who was Richard Donner even to be the one to bring that vision to life? He seems a strange choice. Donner came into it really late, really late. The people who did this were the Salkins, and they were movie producers who apparently are best known for the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers in the early 70s. Michael York versions of it. Yes, those were hits. Kind of forgotten now, but yeah, maybe the most famous screen versions of that story. Right after The Three Musketeers is when they started production on this, 75. Took a while to get going, and the younger Salkin went to his dad and said, I think Superman would make a good movie. We need lots and lots of money, and his dad bankrolled him. They were very wealthy. After The Three Musketeers 3 and 4, which had been made back-to-back, they're like, we're going to do two back-to-back. And they decided that they needed a name to give it respect, so they hired Mario Puzo to write a script for both movies. Kind of a strange choice, that. I had to laugh when I saw that in the credits. I had no idea who wrote this movie, but when I saw his name, I was just slapped the forehead. Oh my god, really? Had Godfather gotten so big that they thought that he could do anything? If you're wondering what he was doing writing this movie, so was everyone, because he actually didn't. He wrote a version. He wrote a 550-page script for two films. (laughs) I would love to read that in novel form. 552-page script. It was a novel or was it a screenplay? No, it was a screenplay for two films. That's not two films. A page a minute is the rule with screenplays. Oh, I I know. (laughs) And they were planning on filming every minute of it. That would be two five-hour films. Crazy madness. Well, he's all about epics, and God knows the Godfather story. Maybe we'll do it one day. That truly is an intricate, generation-spanning saga. I mean, truly, that was the style of movies people would have expected in the early 70s. A Godfather epic. Get the guy that did the Godfather, and maybe he can tell the epic story of these creatures from space that become Superman. Yeah, but he took it in the wrong direction. He took it camp. The only thing I can find about this Puzo script was there was a cameo in it for Telly Savalas where he encounters Lex Luthor, the two bald guys, and Telly Savalas offers him a lollipop and says, who loves you, babe? (laughs) A Kojak joke. I don't think that would play now. So they just kept going with it. They knew they needed a name. The first actor they cast, strangely, not because of Puzo. You'd think Puzo would be the connection between the Salkins and Brando. But no, they just lucked into getting a contact with Marlon Brando and offering him more money than God has for 12 days work. And with Brando attached, everything else became easy. Yeah, it's crazy. Another funny thing, just watching the credit sequence here, the fact that Marlon Brando gets top billing over Christopher Reeve, which, okay, nobody knew who he was, but over everyone for a character that is 
barely in the movie. And I don't know that they even needed him that much. It's crazy. It just shows you what kind of star power he commanded back in the 70s. He could do no wrong. But this is sort of it for him. This was the last really major hit he'd have other than Apocalypse Now. And he left Apocalypse Now. I remember the very first time I ever saw Apocalypse Now was with you, Stuart. And when we pushed stop on that tape, you just railed on Brando. How dare he leave filming of this early to go film that Superman? <laughs> I will say that Apocalypse Now is a preferred film to this movie, but, uh, you know, hey, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. The man's gotta eat, and clearly he's gotta eat a lot, as we'll see. <laughs> to be fair, he did try to convince the production to just use his voice and have Jor-El be either a talking briefcase or a, I'm serious, this is what the notes say, a talking green bagel. Well... <laughs> That's actually him testing the producers. That was kind of a joke he was playing on them that you can't always trust the context of Wikipedia. If you listen to Donner's commentary, he said they didn't know if he was serious and they were scared that they just paid him three million to not even appear but to be a talking bagel. But he was testing boundaries and seeing if he could mess with Donner. As he's wont to do. I mean, it should be said, Brando is notorious with taking hostage your production. Everyone wants him because he's a legend, but once you get him, be careful what you ask for, because he truly does just break a director if he thinks he can, and he'll look for weaknesses. He'll throw the script out. I mean, forget it. Puzo could write a 10,000-page script, and Brando wouldn't read a word of it. He's going to do his own thing. You hire Brando, and Brando does what Brando wants. Oh, no. Brando stuck exactly to the script. He never read a word of it until it was on cue cards placed around the set. Yeah, refused to memorize his lines. He called that his method. But yeah, once Brando was attached, they convinced Hackman, they got the rest of the cast, and then they needed a director. They were coming up pretty close to production, and they liked the omen of all freaking things. Yeah, that's the only thing I would have known Richard Donner for at this point in his career. I mean, it's not necessarily what would get you a gig doing a superhero movie, but it was a very big hit. And it was coming at the right time, 1976. What are you going to do next? Well, understand Donner wasn't their first choice. The other people they talked to, they couldn't meet their salaries. And this is going to be something we're going to hear again and again about the Salkins. They financed this. Well, they would spend money where they felt they needed to. They'd give Marlon Brando a record salary for 12 days. But when it came to other leads, when it came to directors... They were penny-pinching, and Donner was not only making the omen, which they liked, he was the right price. (laughs) I gotcha. Hey, I've seen Superman 4. I know that they're cheap. I mean, I know how low (laughs) they can go. Not surprising there. But, all right, I love playing this game. Who else was on tap for this? Who else could have made a Superman movie? Peckinpah? No. Well, that would certainly have been a bloody one. Definitely not for kids. You have Puzo and Brando. How about Coppola? Oh, well, I guess you'd give him the script to anything that he wanted to make at that point in his career. And at no other time, now that I think of it. I guess the Salkins are horror fans as William Friedkin. Oh, wow. (laughs) They really, really could have gotten a very scary Superman project going. I mean, forget that Tim Burton lore. I mean, this would have killed the whole franchise if he'd given it to some of these directors. They're not into myth-making. Friedkin scares the crap out of me. I mean, he was the one that brought a gun to the set. I can't imagine what he tried to do with a wholesome super character. Speaking of a gun, the reason they didn't go with Peckinpah is he pulled a gun on one of the meetings with the Salkins. (laughs) 
<laughs> Another wild man crazy. You gotta love the 70s. The directors really, truly were in control at that time, and as much as they were in control of anything, and there are some great stories about their heyday. Here's the best one, though. They almost had Spielberg. Wow. Spielberg was ready, and he wanted, again, too much money. This was before Jaws was out. The Salkin said, maybe, let's see how his fish movie does. Well, they said the same thing with Bond, too. (laughs) (laughs) They really, they should have bet on him. I guess that's easy in hindsight to say before you've seen Jaws that this kid is going to be able to be the most successful filmmaker of all time. But, wow, that would have been an interesting choice and probably not so dissimilar from the movie we get. I do feel there is a Spielbergian quality to the way that Superman 78 plays out. I just blame it all on John Williams. You put that score in, it's Lucasian, it's Spielbergian. Yeah, I remember as a kid, I would get this and the Star Wars opening theme mixed up. There are some cues here that are very Williams, where I think at one time I thought he took it from Close Encounters. Yeah, he borrows from himself a lot. It's a great score. It is. It's the reason it's our opening credits. One does not argue with John Williams' greatness. But yeah, I've sat through so many hours of making of. I've read so many IMDb trivia. For those who want to know more about the making of, it's out there. Go find it. The last thing, though, is, of course, this movie has two cuts released on the video set I got, but probably over two dozen cuts are floating out there. There's the regular theatrical cut that comes in a little over two hours. Yep, that's the one I saw. There's the extended cut, which is not called the director's cut, but just the extended cut that puts back in seven more minutes. I saw both of these cuts. And then there was a lot more footage shot, never used. They shoved it all in for a TV cut. And I found out while researching this movie... Something that goes way back to our second retrospective series, Stuart. Remember I was talking about, maybe you don't remember, The Wrath of Khan and how on ABC I could see these scenes that revealed this one ensign to be Scotty's nephew. And that's why Scotty was so broken up. I had to tape it on ABC. It was the only way I could find it. Well, it turns out I found out for this, ABC was buying their nighttime movies and paying literally by the minute. Ah. So of course you want to make this a three-hour-plus film. I'm sorry, the cut will be three hours long. I love it, yeah. And, you know, it filled up the whole network broadcasting time, so they probably thought it was advantageous to play it. I mean, people watched movies at that time on commercial television. An abhorrent idea now, but people would wait for the commercials and watch the whole thing spill out for hours and hours. It was actually a miniseries. It was played over two nights, two hours a night. Wow, crazy. But, you know, no doubt about it, this thing has an epic quality to it. I saw it, and yes, at two hours, I felt like it was long enough, but I could see it going on. I can imagine where there is more parts to fill in, because there's huge jumps here, huge gaps, as we get into this story. Arnie, I think that's your cue. Why don't you go ahead and tell us, what is Superman in a plot? The planet Krypton is doomed. It's hurtling towards the sun, but only Jarrell seems concerned. The rest of the ruling council of Krypton is convinced he's exaggerating by saying the planet's going to explode, and they plan to charge Jarrell with insurrection if he spreads panic, or if he and his wife try to leave the planet Krypton. Jarrell agrees to not cause dissension, but he has a loophole. He builds a spaceship for his very young son, Kal-El, and sends the boy to Earth as Krypton explodes. It takes three years in space, but Kalel reaches Earth, landing safely in Smallville, where he's found by childless couple, the Kents. They quickly discover the boy has super strength, speed, and invulnerability, and choose to raise the special boy, keeping his power secret. 
they name him Clark. He's raised in Smallville, but when he reaches 18, his father has a heart attack and dies, and Clark finds a green crystal that was sent with him from Krypton. Traveling north, the crystal creates a fortress of solitude, resembling Krypton in its crystalline architecture. There, Clark encounters a artificially intelligent hologram of his birth father, Jor-El. Jor-El spends 12 years teaching his son about his powers and the history of the known galaxy, and at age 30, Clark returns to civilization. He moves to the big city of Metropolis to use his powers to help and inspire humanity under the name Superman. But by day, he lives as nebbish, clumsy, dweeb Clark Kent, reporter for the Daily Planet. He starts to romance his ballsy fellow reporter Lois Lane, but Lois only has her eyes for Superman, with whom she scores an exclusive interview as he romances her in the skies above Metropolis. But underneath the streets of Metropolis schemes Lex Luthor, the self-proclaimed greatest criminal mind of the 20th century. Lex has been buying worthless desert land with the intent of hijacking a U.S. nuclear missile and launching it at the San Andreas Fault, plummeting California into the ocean and making Luther's property value beachside real estate. Superman's appearance throws a wrench in Luther's plan, so he sets a trap for the Superman. He has a small meteorite that is a piece of Krypton, he calls it kryptonite, and its radiation makes Superman powerless. He leaves Superman to drown, but Superman is saved by Lex's girlfriend, Miss Tessmacher, who agrees to save Superman if he will, in turn, save her mother. You see, due to Lex's henchman Otis screwing up, Lex actually launched two missiles. One went to the San Andreas Fault, and the other was sent to Hackensack, New Jersey, home of Miss Tessmacher's mom. Superman agrees and saves New Jersey, but it doesn't leave him time to stop the second missile. It hits, starting an earthquake, and while Superman stops California from falling into the ocean, he can't save Lois, who dies when her car falls into an earthquake crevice. So Superman takes to space and flies around the Earth so fast he reverses its rotation, turning back time and reviving Lois. He then flies off into space and the sequel as credits roll. That always ticked me off. I gotta just say, that was one part. Man, I don't know. We'll get there when we get there. There's a lot of ground to cover here. But this is a strange film that really, it takes a long time to unfold. I guess they had a master plan, right? They weren't going to do it in one film. That's why the movie starts with setup for Superman 2, right? When we start here, it's not to do anything other than to set up Zod, Nan, and Ursa. Well... They were making two films at once for a while. I'll tell you right now, they only had Hackman and Brando for a couple weeks, and those were all at the beginning. So any footage you see of Hackman in the second film was filmed before the majority of the first film. And yes, there was this great plan. There were a lot of differences between what Donner had originally envisioned, which completely was different from Hughes' script. The moment Donner was hired, he looked at Hughes' script, said, this is crap, threw it out, and had it completely rewritten by some other people, and then had his friend rewrite it still, who didn't get a SAG credit, so he's creative consultant. And... They were going to make these two movies at the same time. Something you're going to hear me talk a lot about again with the Salkins. The budget got tight, so they decided to just film what they had to for the second movie. They quit the second movie, decided to focus on the first. We'll talk about all the differences. Some of that comes up in the Donner cut of Superman 2, which we'll discuss more next week. But yeah, they were setting up these villains at the beginning. They were supposed to be the climax at the end of this film. Superman launches one of those nuclear missiles into space. It explodes, releasing the villains from the Phantom Zone. Zod screams, I'm free! And credits roll with starting with Come Back for Superman 2. 
Oh, I like that. That is so much better. I think that that justifies why they're here. Because I got to say, it is kind of anticlimactic that nothing ever comes of these characters. I mean, it's a cool scene. Don't get me wrong. And it starts the movie on their big money man. The first line of dialogue, it's Brando waving his little baton, lecturing these people. No, it's not. The first line of dialogue is a little boy reading a comic book. Oh, yeah. What the hell was that? I completely forgot. I was right there with you, Stuart. I thought this movie opened on Krypton with the villains and Jarrell. I had no memory Mm-mm. of this little boy reading a black and white comic and really hearkening back to both the TV show we kind of reviewed last week and the radio drama and the original action comics appearance of Superman. I didn't remember it, but I think it's a nice touch. What's really strange is that it talks about it being the 30s and it really builds up not Superman, not Krypton. The Daily Planet? In Metropolis, there's the Daily Planet that watches over the city and brings about the truth, and then it goes into the credits. I gotta wonder if this opening, because it never plays out, this doesn't take place in the 30s, I gotta wonder if this was just there because of audiences at that time. There's no way you could buy into just watching a comic book film like we do today, where we just accept it, we can suspend our disbelief and accept what's on the screen. Here, they kind of had to ease you into that. I wonder if that's why that was on there. Jacob, you're the comic book guy. Have you read Action Comics number one? Yes. Is this the opening to it? That's what I took it as, is he was reading us the first pages of the first Superman comic ever. No, you get into who Superman is, comic book in those days, they get right into Krypton and where Superman came from and coming to Earth. It's just weird. If you're going to read this as in the 30s, wouldn't you make this a period piece? Again, I think it was just a way to ease the audience in. But when we do get to Krypton, and even now, kind of my eyes gloss over waiting for this little interlude to pass, it's all Brando. I mean, this is where the money is, right? So we get Brando giving us the lecture on why these guys have got to go. It's mentioned that they've threatened children. I'm not really sure what bad they've done. But if the whole problem is is that they wanted to start an insurrection against this council, I'm on Zod's side because this council is wrong about <laughs> everything. After they get done with this case, the council is like, oh, there's no ecological disaster. We're just going to sit here and blow up. I mean, this council needs to be overthrown. Zod's right. Isn't that the irony? I think that's what's great about this opening, even though the payoff really isn't until the next film, is you see Jor-El committing these people to the Phantom Zone, this life sentence, and yet he's going to be accused of the same crime in a few minutes. What's the Phantom Zone? Is that the ABBA cover that comes down and, and floats away? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> okay, Is yeah. that piece of glass? I mean, this stuff terrified me as a kid. Those big heads pronouncing guilty, this mirror that comes down and they get trapped in it. Like, this is kind of scary stuff when you're a kid, but I love how alien this feels. Now watching this, I could see this 70s Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon vibe with this whole Krypton and this dome. And again, this has really shaped how the comics now represent Krypton. But a lot of this, I think, was just made up for this production before, especially in the older comics, you know, it just kind of looked like a futuristic city, not this cold ice landscape here. The art direction in this is astonishing. They built these sets in Pinewood. Pinewood's where they built the sets for Alien. They did a lot of James Bond there. I'm a fan of their style. I think that you can recognize the craftsmanship of a set made in Pinewood, because every time we go back to these old movies, before I know where it came from, I'm just impressed. And this art direction's awesome. I I love Kryptonian architecture. 
Well, surprisingly, this wasn't supposed to be filmed in Pinewood. This was supposed to be filmed in Rome. And then they found out Brando was wanted in Rome for obscenity because of Last Tango in Paris. And so <laughs> Brando's like, I ain't going to Rome. Oh, man, it would have been so much better if he were holding a stick of butter in this opening scene. That's awesome. <laughs> So, Pinewood was plan B. Regardless, this movie looks great. Of course, there are dated qualities to the special effects. But by and large, I really was impressed at how easy it was to buy into this world. I don't know how much the budget was here, but it was enough to work 30 years later. I'll agree with you on the majority of it. I think that the scene where we actually approach whatever city this is on Krypton, the big dome, the miniature work. Both in this opening scene and later in the film, the miniature work is very dated. But the rest of it, the sparkling outfits, the glowing heads, the sound effects, it's all working. It's aided by masterful performances, though, by both Brando and Terrence Stamp Azad here. You're going toe-to-toe with Brando, and Stamp does it. Stamp is the one I want to know more about in this scene. You say it only exists to set up the sequel. In the final cut, that's true. But my God, do I want that sequel if I know Zod's coming back. Yeah, I'm sure the payout is worth it when we get there next week, but I'm just talking about, hey, let's pretend that nothing ever followed this movie. We're reviewing Superman and nothing else, and I think that's fair. This is a superfluous scene. It is a strange way to begin the story of the Superman character. I mean, truly, what you'd want to get to is the fact that there is one sole survivor that's put in a manger and flies away to Earth. That's the focus here. The rest of this 10 minutes, it's stalling. It's taking focus away from what we've paid to see. In the director's cut, it has another benefit, and this is one of the things I like about the director's cut. There's an additional scene here between Jor-El and that dumbass council, and what they state is, Jor-El, if you keep doing this, we're going to charge you with insurrection, and we're going to put you in the Phantom Zone. They even state Jor-El started the Phantom Zone, and Jor-El goes, you know, if I'm in the Phantom Zone, I have a chance to live. The people we just condemned, they're going to live, and all of you are going to die. Oh, I'm glad that he couldn't see that irony because I thought it was hilarious that rather than punishing these people, they give them a way out, whereas the rest of this council dies. Zod's insurrection, is it directly related to what Brando was arguing? Are they retaliating because this council is too stupid to evacuate? No. No, they never get rid of it into the films. I know they've worked it into the comics. Donner's actually worked on some of the comics just over the last few years where they bring back Zod and talk about the insurrection and go into some of those details. No, they were just trying to take over Krypton, as Brando would call it. (laughs) It had nothing to do with the destruction of it. I just love that Brando can't even bother saying Krypton. It's Krypton. Hey, it's that New York Kryptonian accent. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, you gotta love Brando here. But like I said, they could have started this movie and done what they did here in a fraction of the time. Truly, the heart tugger is that the mom has to part with the baby. Now, I don't know why they're not all getting in a pod. There's nothing preventing them from escaping as well, right? Why not get a three-seater? I think this is where it would aid you to watch the extended cut. As Arnie said, there are some extra scenes where Brando makes a promise so the council won't get up in his business. He says, I nor my wife will make any attempt to escape. More, they actually, in the scene that has the least payoff in the extended cut, there's another scene with the council as the spaceship is launching going, Jarrell's using an abnormal amount of power, and they send this stormtrooper in a Jiffy Pop hat yes. to stop him, <laughs> and we never see the Jiffy Pop guy again. If that ever paid off, that would have been good. The TV cut. 
Yeah, the TV cut, we would see his eyes pop. He'd be one of the first to die. But they do send somebody there, so had he used that power for himself, they probably would have stopped him. They sacrificed themselves for the sake of their son. Whatever, whatever. I don't need to know all the ins and the whys and whatever. I do because we're on the show and because it's something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in retrospect. But the point of the story is it's a boy on his own, abandoned by his parents, but getting lectures? But looking at it as a movie, Brando is their top build. Brando was the face on the teaser poster. Brando is who's bringing in the audience. Why do we get Brando saying the son becomes the father and the father becomes the son? Because people want Brando. And because he ended up getting close to $50 million for this. Wow, that's Joker money. That's Jack Nicholson money. Yeah, he got a bunch up front and a percentage of the profits. Now, a lot of this would have paid off in Superman 2 as well. He filmed a lot of scenes for Superman 2. Not a single one will you see for next week, Stuart. Huh. But a lot of this was still more Superman 2 setup. I also see this as being really different for the time it came out. We talked about Superman and the Moleman last week, where you just get this voiceover about his origins. Batman 66, I think there is one reference in the entire series about Batman's parents dying. You never get an origin. Dude just shows up. I think this is really different. Taking the time to develop this character, show him where he's coming from. We're used to this now. We're kind of sick of it by this time because we've seen <laughs> Spider-Man's origins twice in 10 years. But for this time, this was something that was really new. To go into this backstory. I mean, this was comic book geek stuff only at that time. And it made it specifically sci-fi. If we just had Superman on Earth, it's a comic book movie, but is it science fiction? But I think it was just the cultural zeitgeist of the time that coming out on the heels of Star Wars to have an alien from space, to have a science fiction movie, to make this specifically sci-fi, really helped tap into the audience. Well, you did have David Bowie with The Man Who Fell to Earth. He just didn't become super. Yeah, different take on it all. Certainly not a Superman. I would say this, that the whole idea of an epic, if you look at it, is really cradle-to-grave kind of storytelling. It's not untraditional to show someone at infancy, at birth, at all of that. If they're an important figure, we want to know their whole life story. We want to condense their whole time on Earth, or time in the universe, as it were, into one film. That's the point of a big big giant epic and people had an appetite for that kind of stuff back then i think that it would have felt strange to start any later than here with the child being sent away i think you had to do that we'd want to see the whole origin particularly when you have an adult audience that didn't read the comics that may not have watched the show that didn't know this history but as you've so repeatedly said, Stuart, you didn't have to spend a half an hour doing it or an hour if you count the Smallville stuff. They could have done it much quicker. They could have done it montage. They could have done it much cheaper. That they choose to focus on this makes this movie both special and long. Yes. It makes it feel like an epic. And as this Starcraft reaches Earth and he's discovered by a childless couple, it makes it really feel like a biblical epic. I mean, Hollywood used to tell Bible stories all the time. That was their bread and butter. Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille. People expected to sit in a theater for three hours and watch these really long, drawn-out stories. But it's impossible for me to ignore the fact that this is a Christ child story. They're intentionally doing this. This is not just me reading into this. They're intentionally telling the story of a man who fell to earth, granted by his father to make the people that live there better. There have been papers written on this. No, 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 not papers, books. Yeah. 
And I'll tell you where I really got it was later on in his life where he disappears at 18 and returns at 30. That just screams Jesus to me. But yeah, there's a lot here that you want to see if you want to. And I do understand from some of the supplemental material that some Jewish people got upset because Superman is a character created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who are both Jewish. And to take their creation and turn them into Jesus, some people were offended by that. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, it does kind of bother me. This is a character so rooted in Judaism. Again, coming out right before the war, this is a character that goes off and defeats Hitler in the comic. This is a Jewish fantasy, you know, that these people that have been stereotyped as small and spindly. Here's this giant, perfect Superman that comes out and represents them and defeats this Nazi power. I think the whole Christ image is brought about because of Donner. I think the way he portrays Superman in this film is really cemented that and people have ran with it. I, and I think you could watch this and read it just as much of a Moses story. Moses sent down a river in a basket. Here we get a child sent down the cosmic river in this spaceship that looks like a woven basket almost. Sent to a strange man in a strange land. Sent to lead the people somewhere else. You know, Moses does have some similarities to Jesus. There's myths that go beyond Christ. And I think people will see what they want to but I do agree Donner does bring a strong Christ figure to Superman here. Well, we'll agree to use the word biblical. I mean, whether you want to say Moses or Jesus, the inspiration here is to really tell a very old tale in a new way with these comic book archetypes. I was not expecting that. It was a real surprise. I found it impressive. I liked the tone of this film coming back to it as an adult. Yeah, again, something very 70s about psychedelic space Jesus, space Bible, you know, something like that. It's a very interesting take watching it now, seeing these things, you know, before what was a comic book. Now it's like this mythical, sci-fi, biblical thing going on. It's very different seeing this as an adult and seeing all these different things going on in it. And coming back to this, I did not remember that any other actor other than Christopher Reeve played Kal-El. This was notorious that there was another actor who they creepily dubbed Christopher Reeve's voice over for the teenage years. Okay, I was going to ask you that, Arnie, because I'm listening. I'm like, this guy does one hell of a Reeves impression, but I'm also like, this looks really ADR. Things aren't matching up quite as much as they should here. Who is Jeff East, and why was this choice made? It seems strange to me that they wouldn't just comb Christopher Reeves' hair different and put him in the Letterman jacket. They could have gotten away with it. We would have accepted it. No, I mean, Reeves plays a 30-year-old in this, and it's weird the ADR isn't great, but I'm glad they did go with someone younger. I, I feel like I am watching this epic of someone age. I see him as a baby. Baby, and now as a teenager, and then I'll see him as a man. We talked about this with Sinatra in The Detective. We couldn't <laughs> even tell when he was playing a younger version of himself, because dude just looks old. Yeah, I think that it may have gotten worse, too, because Christopher Reeve really bulked up for this role. He gained, like, 40 pounds of muscle thanks to David Prowse. Darth Vader was his trainer. So getting a young kid here is the right choice. They put makeup on him to make him look more Reeve-ish, and it works, but that ADR work just comes off as creepy because it's this wrong voice coming out of this kid. I didn't notice, just as someone that didn't know the behind the scenes, I didn't notice that that's what they had done, but I guess it's a weird jump to go from seeing that little boy holding up the car that is about to fall on his dad to seeing this guy kicking a football because he's not allowed to hang out with the cool kids it's a big leap i mean was there filler material that is in some of these longer cuts 
there's more of him as an 18-year-old talking to his dad some more as his dad's fixing the car and scenes like that. But no, this is the intended flow of the movie. Baby turns teenager, father dies in a scene that wrecked me as a child. Wrecked me every time. And then the funeral and him coming to terms with the fact he couldn't save his father. And then finding the crystal and pilgriming north question there you know i'm with the flow of it i mean i think it's the right choice even though it's a stark junk cut but we've seen that kind of juxtaposed before the most famous for me 2001 eight throws up a bone bone turns into a starship there is something kind of kubrickian about the structure here i like it i'm going with it but what are we to make of the fact that the crystal was underneath the barn did they build the barn on the side of the crash if you look at the crash when he's a baby, I mean, that spaceship is turned, it looks like just a molten rock at this point, but you do see the blanket in there. I'm guessing they went and just grabbed the stuff out of there and found this crystal. I got to figure your kid's got superpowers. Something's going to get revealed to him at some point. I don't think it's a big mystery. At least it wasn't a big issue for me. And I think the crystal called to him because he was turning 18 and Later, Jarrell says, you have reached your 18th year, and so it's very instinctive. It's somehow programmed into his DNA to do this. Sure. I mean, Brando has a master plan. He said it back on the planet. He's like, I'm not really dead. I'll be with you always. And God knows that poor baby had to listen to him prattle on and on and on for three years while that ship went to Earth. World's worst road trip audiobook, by the way. Come on! It's the full knowledge of the known 28 galaxies. That's riveting stuff. (laughs) If three years isn't enough, the unabridged version's waiting for you 15 years later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this kid suffered a lot by the time he's reached 18. I mean, losing your Earth dad is one thing, but oh, the trip over. Oy vey. And he has to walk to the North Pole. Yeah. I bring up 2001, too, because I do feel like there are just strange moments like that that exist outside of reality, and we just have to go with it. Okay, there's a weird green crystal. It has an aura and a power that makes people do things, and they get crazy ideas about hitchhiking to... It is the North Pole, right? That's not even Alaska. There are no roads there by the time he's gotten there. He is literally walking along glaciers. What I do find funny, he's riding on glaciers down frozen rivers. He knows he's got, like, super speed. We saw him earlier chasing a train. We know he's got super strength. We've seen him kick a football to space. Does he not know he could fly at this point? Why suffer through the snow? I mean, it's a bitch traveling through snow. This guy doesn't have snow boots. He couldn't just fly there super fast. I don't think he does know that. Yeah, if you go with Smallville, which was intended to be a prequel to the series in a lot of ways, he didn't learn to fly until about this time. Yeah, I think we see it in this abstract way that they lay it out here. I mean, he throws the crystal, it creates the little mini Krypton that he'll call the Fortress of Solitude. Cute name. Have many parties, do you? And then, you know, <laughs> we get more Brando as a hologram, and they, they have this little interlude here. It's after that interlude that whatever hasn't been explained to him has, through the process of osmosis, boredom, and what have you, and the imprinting of a new, snazzy new suit, I think that's when he finally realized is his entire potential. I think every moment of his life has been leading up to this point where he can now fly in front of the camera and we see him do it right here in the Fortress of Solitude. 
Stuart, talk about 2001. Yeah, 12 years inside the monolith here, or I guess inside of Brando or whatever this is. You go out into space, we're seeing weird galaxies and weird effects on the camera, and it all ends up into this like frozen Jorel face that we go through his eyes. Like, yeah, this is real trippy stuff here. I did not get this as a kid. It wasn't until much later that I understood that this was a 12 year like university class beyond space and time. Really weird stuff to go with a comic book character at this time. You get this now? Because I don't get this now. Does Clark leave Earth? I mean, I like a planetarium as much as the next guy, but what is going on for these 12 years? Is he just sitting there absorbing? Is he like Keanu in the Matrix and he's downloading for 12 years? I don't get what's happening. Yeah, I have no idea. I took it as some meditation process through this weird space supercomputer. Yeah, it's real trippy stuff. It's not totally explained, but I get knowing what I know about 2001 and just different films back. Yeah, this is a psychedelic trip. He does acid for 12 years and learns everything. That's what it felt like. The other thing that I get is when we see this big Jarrell hologram, I love it because whenever Clark asks a question, his eyes flash and it makes me think of a data, like a disk drive flashing as it accesses data. But what he says is, by this time, I will have been dead for thousands of your years. So Krypton blew up thousands of years ago, and I guess because of the speed of light and Einstein's theory of relativity, Clark aged 18 years over the course of thousands? Yeah, I mean, they drop some stuff about the theory of relativity if you're listening to that really boring road <laughs> trip soundtrack here. I think that's their explanation. Hey, traveling through space, speed of light, uh, you age differently. Some of this may be coming from different cuts of the movie as well. I'm not sure that I understood it that way. At some point, it's said by somebody that it took three years for him to get to Earth. That was what I hung on, was that he spent three years from Krypton. Well, Lex said that later on, but who are you going to believe, Lex or Jarrell? Jarrell has the knowledge of the 28 known galaxies. Lex lives in a subway. I'm going to believe Lex because <laughs> Jarrell is played by Brando and he makes stuff up that's crazy all the time. <laughs> Made. You might want to switch to the past tense with Brando verbs. No, he never dies, apparently. <laughs> But you know what? I think obliquely is the way to handle this. Does it make logical sense? No. I'm not sure if you spent all of your time giving as much intensity as you can to all these questions, you would be able to answer them any better than they do here. Skip over it. Make it seem mythic. Make it seem psychedelic. Trip us out. Impress us. Send us cheering with him flying away. We're 45 minutes in. Now the movie can really begin. When I was a kid, this was the moment where it really kicked in for me. Up to this point... I was really bored, but yeah, once he put on the cape, once he's flying away, once he reaches Metropolis and is playing Clark Kent, I'm hooked into the movie. I'm going to agree with you, Stuart. The strongest thing, and, and I'm going to guess throughout all these Superman films, or at least these first four, it's going to be Christopher Reeve. To me, this is Superman. Here is a guy, he doesn't need any molded muscles. He's going to put on this red and blue spandex, and he's not going to look frumpy like Adam West. He's going to pull this off. I don't know if I'm going to believe a man could fly after seeing this film, but I'm going to believe a man could look like a superhero in spandex by the end of this film because of Reeve. I, I love it when he's playing Kent. Like, right here when we get to Metropolis, I'm marveled by his performance. I'm impressed that they went with a new guy. I mentioned before, I didn't really think that the 70s produced stars that could play Superman, but it's crazy when I looked up all the people that were up for this role. Dustin Hoffman? Really? Al Pacino was going to put on this suit? James Caan? Muhammad Ali? 
again, this was being forced upon them. They had to have a name. And really, the primary producer didn't want any of these people, but they needed a name attached. It wasn't until they got Brando and Hackman that they were free to do whatever they wanted in the other cast. I would just kill to see the screen test in which Clint Eastwood walked into the room wearing the cape (laughs) and said, I'm Superman. I mean, no, that would make my day, Clint, please. I doubt if a lot of them did it. I mean, James Caan notoriously said, I'm not wearing that bleeping outfit. Yes, yes. I can't imagine him putting it on. But you're right. Absolutely. Truly, the thing that's most startling and refreshing coming back to the series is seeing how good an actor Christopher Ree really was. We got typecast and you just sort of accept the fact that, oh yeah, he's the guy that was Superman. There's a reason. He's really, really good here. Both with the comedy stuff and the dramatic posturing. It's a rare actor that can pull both off convincingly and he does it. I'm with you, Stuart and Jacob, because I didn't remember him being good. That was my memory. I'd seen him in some other stuff as a kid because of my love for Superman. I would also endlessly watch Somewhere in Time. Don't tell me you sat through Monsignor. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> didn't do that one. No one did that. But my memory was just that he was wooden and not very good. And he didn't do a whole lot after Superman. He would do a few other roles. We'll talk about some of them with future movies. But I just didn't expect a whole lot out of him. But truthfully, for a man playing Superman, he gives a surprisingly human and naturalistic performance. I was enraptured by this man both as Clark Kent and as Superman and in a film with Brando, Hackman, Terrence Stamp the fact that Christopher Reeve is going to get my biggest acting accolades when the rest aren't slouching at all is amazing. And he plays the character so differently. One of my big things with the movie is tonal shifts. If it's going to shift tones, it's got to be masterful at that. It's got to pull it off or else I get confused. I don't like it. And here, I see it throughout. It's not just Reeve, but we get to the city finally. We get to Metropolis. We're at the Daily Planet, this bustling newspaper. And I've always imagined this is what it's like to work at a newspaper. Just chaos. I love this. But we've seen Smallville, Kansas. We've seen space. Now we're in the city where we're playing jokes like there's only one p in rapist for me reeve is like the embodiment of this film we're able to go to space go to kansas but it all fits it all works and like reeve he almost disappears at the beginning here when he's in the chief's office he's this huge guy but as kent that's his whole point is to not draw attention to him he disappears and then later on when he becomes superman he's a totally different character he plays it totally different He's the elephant in the room. I mean, no one's noticing him, and yet you guys never veer from him. It's a rare gift, and I think it's because he's good at comedy. I mean, that was what I did not remember. But he's really good with one-liners. He even pulls a real lewd sex joke when they pop the bottle or whatever, and it spills all over his pants when he sees Lois. He's able to do all these different things that are asked of him at a really rapid rate, and he does them well. It's a juggling act. You know what it really reminds me of, and what he really reminds me of, is an old-time kind of stuff. I mean, someone that you'd expect to see in the 40s, like a Clark Gable or a Cary Grant here. And it's incredible. This guy hadn't had but one acting credit before this. And I completely agree with you guys. He really pulls this off. The strangest thing, though, that I heard, and they didn't go into much detail about it in the bonus features, is apparently he was a method actor for this first film. And he wouldn't break character. I don't know if this meant he was like, I'm going to go get some lunch. And then he climbed to the roof and jumped. 
Or did he bump into the door on the way out? I mean, he's not just playing one character. He's playing a dual personality. And that's part of the fun of it here. I mean, we've laughed about the idea that Nicolas Cage was up for this and every other superhero part. But you know what? Watching this performance this time, I could actually kind of see what they were thinking of here. Because it is a comedy. On some level, this is a perfect man trying to pretend that he's imperfect so that no one will notice him fixing their lives. It's a hilarious conundrum that this character is. It's an almost absurdist comedy that Superman is cast in here, and I like the way that that's played. I wonder, maybe Cage could have pulled it off. I know that Christopher Reeve can, because he's good at comedy. Which begs the question, what do you guys think of Lois Lane? The yen to his yang. The the lowest link to a Superman. <laughs> I love her teeth. I'm fixated by them in this film. They're so straight and white. Tell me you didn't notice her teeth. Oh, I, I cannot tell you. That is why I asked the question is, having not seen this movie since childhood, a lot has obviously happened to both of these actors in that time. And I was worried that what I knew about their real lives would color my perspective coming back to this. Christopher Reeve, no problem. I didn't think about the injury, the accident, nothing of that. He was Superman and I was right there. Margot Kidder, I was always worried for the lady. I gotta say, I was really (laughs) looking at those teeth. It's kind of because she's got a crazy energy to her. The way that she plays this Lois is kind of like Kathleen Hepburn back in like His Girl Friday or something. Like She's brassy, she's big, she's kind of crazy crazy just as it is so the fact that margot kidder's playing her that way yeah i just could never shake it and of course one of the most notorious things about her mental illness and future breakdown is that when they found her she was toothless and wandering around her backyard she has a line in here somewhere about how if she lived in suburbia she would go crazy and every time those moments happen i groaned i mean oh it's unfortunate Maybe it's something from the 70s, but there are certain women who I just never get the appeal of. Margot Kidder is one of them. Karen Allen is another one. These brassy, ballsy, unattractive brunettes who play leading ladies in films of the early 80s and late 70s. (laughs) What about Deborah Winger? Are you a Deborah Winger fan? Not especially. <laughs> there you go. I guess it's your type. But it is a weird choice. I've got to say, they put her brains first. They put her comedy skills second. But sex appeal is not a big part of this Lois Lane. And that's probably a big choice. Is she supposed to be hot? I don't think she is. I think it's just a risk they took that we would like her for who she was and not because she was a knockout. I don't think she's a drop-dead knockout starlet. Oh, I remember as a kid, I would believe that Clark would fall for her. We talked about what mole men how lois just wanted to go home and get a pedicure there's no story here i do like this lois this feels very 70s woman's lib to me she's out there she's taking control she may not be able to spell but she's willing to grab someone by the balls to get a story she stands up to a mugger i like this lois why would she need a superman she's out there fending for herself why would superman need her Yes. Is what I don't get. That's where my disconnect lies, is what is it that she offers that catches the eyes of a god? 
Yeah. That is a question to be asked. I really can't say that this movie answers it. I understand the inverse. I understand why someone who's tough as nails, one of the boys, as it were, the only one that could impress her was a Superman because she's already one of the guys. I don't understand quite why Clark Kent, Superman, Kal-El, whatever you want to call him, I don't know why this is the one for him. I don't know why he would be inspired. She doesn't look like his mother. She doesn't do anything particularly nice to him. I'm not sure why. I guess it's because she's the best reporter in the world and he's the best man in the world. Is it because they're both so good at what they do that brings them together? You know, Arnie, you say, why would a god fall for her? I think that's the thing about Clark Kent at this point. He doesn't see himself as a god. Yes, he's gone through 12 years of space school. We saw him fly out of the North Pole. But he's not going around solving crimes. Yes, he catches a bullet, but he doesn't pull open his shirt to reveal himself as Superman to stop a mugger. He just kind of does it coyly. We don't see him at this point doing a lot of Superman stuff. His mission at this point is to go and inspire people. I guess write really good investigative journalism and get people active. <laughs> That's always inspiring. Maybe he can do a story about a well. I just think that it's awfully convenient how he just goes after Lois. And I do like the bullet scene. First of all, that is the best dressed mugger in all of Metropolis, isn't it? I mean, he's wearing a suit. Well, because he's mugging people. <laughs> But it's like love at first sight. He uses his superpowers to save Lois. And in fact, as the most geeky guy he could possibly be, tries to romance her. He asks her out as Clark. And I think he's persistent enough to be a step away from a harassment suit. It's the 70s. They didn't have those then. But that's part of his whole disguise is that he knows that he stands no chance with this woman. She doesn't have time for him. She doesn't respect him. She walks right past him, never looks him at anything. I mean, I guess they form some kind of friendship by the end of it. But by and large, I think she thinks he's a nerd and she really has little to say or do about him. He only asks her out because it's his game. The more that he asserts himself in the office, the more people roll their eyes and think less of him. It makes me wonder how he's able to hold his job. Allegedly, he's <laughs> brought in here because he's replacing her on the city beat. But truly, that's the last promotion Clark Kent will ever get. <laughs> it's because he's the fastest typer he could be perry's secretary one day if he keeps that up i swear i remember a scene that i cannot find any reference to where they ask clark for a letter of reference and clark has perry step out and then goes over and super types one on the typewriter i thought the typist reference was a reference to this cut scene but i can't find any reference of it maybe it was in a comic book somewhere or a novelization i've been known to read those from time to time yeah it doesn't sound familiar to me but yeah that would be his biggest asset in this company is that he's a really good typist and she's a lousy one does he even have a degree did jarell give him a diploma i assumed that that's what had happened you guys said that you thought that he spent 12 years at the ice palace that's what it says yeah it says 12 years will have passed he might have said that but my presumption watching the movie was that we just didn't see him go to college we didn't see what he did to earn his place here at the daily planet but i presume that he had a normal life i didn't think it was all within the palace why would they hire him background checks these are reporters they're hiring total strangers from the north pole there was no internet he could lie wait no he never lies <laughs> 
Yeah, one of those conundrums that we'll never quite understand. Best to skip over it and get to some action. Again, I bring up the fact that as a child, my needs for Superman were very, very simple. Save people. And he doesn't get to that until an hour into this movie. Lois is rushing off to see the president land in Air Force One, and her helicopter has the strangest malfunction I've ever known. <laughs> it got snagged on a mic cable? What? What? I don't even know what happens. <laughs> There's power cables on the roof for the spotlights, I guess, and somehow it landed under one. Okay. It was windy. It was windy. I'll give you that. And we need to put her in danger. Would have been too much to ask for it to be logically integrated? Apparently so. But she's in danger. She's dangling out of the chopper. It's dangling off the side of the Daily Planet. And Clark looks up at the drop of her clothing. What was that that fell on him? Had I think it was a hat or a handkerchief, something yeah. that slowly fell down because she had been struggling in that helicopter for a while. Police have already buried off people. They're already looking up there. And by the time Clark strolls out like 20 minutes later, it's just reaching the ground. All I know is that she loses an article of clothing and we find out he's been wearing a Superman suit underneath all of his shirt and tie here. I mean, where does he store the cape? <laughs> just tucks it in tucks it into the pants yep. tucks it into one side maybe he wraps it around the front so he could stuff a little bit with it it doesn't look bunchy but yeah i do like the little joke where he looks at the phone booth that always got a smile yes. out of me because the big thing from the tv series is superman would always find a phone booth and now the pay phones didn't have doors anymore and now there's no pay phones no everybody's just looking at their iphone and he can just change right there yes it's also kind of funny that the first person to see him in the outfit is a pimp, and he gives his sign of approval. <laughs> That's a bad outfit. Again, Donner said Puzo's script was too campy. You still get that feeling in certain parts. The fact that you got a pimp praising Superman for this loud outfit. That's funny. I'm glad it has those moments. Throwing this Boy Scout character in this bright outfit in the gritty New York or Metropolis, we're calling it, in the 70s. Yes, this is the kind of stuff I want to see. You guys read that scene differently than I do. First of all, I didn't think he was a pimp. Second of all, I took that as a funny way of acknowledging what we all know. If you saw somebody wearing this outfit on the street and you weren't at San Diego Comic-Con, you would make a scene about what this person is wearing. You would snicker. And so, to have somebody say that, and I didn't take it as praise for the loud outfit, I took it as a disbelieving reaction. I don't know, I'm sticking to my mind, but yeah, it's a fun energy. At last, the movie has decided to be fun. And I'm not saying it should have been fun the whole time. As an adult, I've liked all the different tonal shifts that we've had throughout the ages but i am ready for some laughs and i'm ready for some excitement and we get it here it's a whole montage that kicks off with saving lois as she falls and she says her classic you've got me who's got you and <laughs> it's a great scene i love watching him catch the helicopter with one hand and lifting her up with the other i hope this doesn't ruin flying for you this is good stuff here and it just keeps going he continues on to catch a cat burglar using suction cups to climb the side of the building. I had to look this up because I have read so many comics and this movie, again, I've lived with it. I just assumed cat burglars used suction cups, but I had to look this up to see if this was really a thing. And the closest I could find is someone was doing this in Taiwan in 2010. <laughs> 
<laughs> I assumed this was a thing. I saw it like on Bugs Bunny all the time, the Wiley E. Coyote. Yeah, Batman himself, Adam West, was famous for this kind of stuff. I don't think anyone ever really did it. I think it comes from cartoons, from comics. It's a funny way of thinking about how you climb a skyscraper, but in practice, probably not a very efficient way. Well, some guy did rob skyscrapers in Taiwan, so fooled you. Yeah, he showed me. <laughs> You're right, though, Stuart. As a kid, this little montage of crime fighting and saving people, this is what I really love. This is what I'd wait for. I never felt impatient, like the movie was taking too long as a kid, but this is the part I really love, seeing Superman do Superman stuff. I'm right there with you, Jacob. I never felt like it was taking too long to get there, but this was what I had the most vivid memory of. This was what excited me. I remembered him saving airplanes. I remembered him stopping robbers. I remembered him getting hit over the head with a crowbar. This was Superman. The one thing I didn't remember was him saving a cat and yet leaving the child-abusing mother inside unscathed. Yeah, I totally remember this. I think it plays very differently now than than it did. I, I always laughed when I saw this as a kid. Yes, my mom probably would have slapped me too for lying about Superman. Yes, it's the changing face of parenting. I mean, no one would dare put a joke about a child being slapped for lying that she saw a man fly and get her cat out of a tree in a movie now. It would upset the helicopter parents. But back then, with corporal punishment a little more common in schools and at home, it probably was just a snicker. But yeah, it kind of surprised me now. Times have changed. I want to also credit the special effects. I'm not going to say 100% of them are state-of-the-art, but they all have a believability to them. Some of the blue screen, not quite so great, or the rear projection or whatever they're using in that specific scene. But overall, it never loses believability. I think a lot of that is actually a credit to the actors. I'm paying attention to Christopher Reeve. I'm not paying attention to the bad background. But by and large, these effects still hold up. And I can attest to personal experience that that flying stuff is not easy to do. Now, the flying effects i do have a relationship with this flying by foy was the company that lifted christopher reeve up on the air in these scenes i'm not talking about the superimposition stuff i'm talking about when he's on set and he leaps up and all of that that was done practical effects on a wire that same company that did those effects did a production of peter pan in which i got to fly in and i was so excited that i got to go 18 feet up in the air, but it's all about posture. People told me I looked like a sack of potatoes there. They're like, you gotta hold out <laughs> arms. You can't just dangle there and expect Flying by Foy to yank you around the stage. You actually have to earn it. It's not all that it's cracked up to me. It also hurts like a mother. <laughs> I, I guess that's another credit to Reeve then, seeing that a lot of that is in the posture, because the best flying effects for me in this film, and especially the ones that hold up the best, are the practical ones, where he's taking off and you see him for a few seconds go off and the sky that stuff is still convincing it still works today yeah and they said that reeve was a natural at it because he did hang gliding the guy horse riding hang gliding so he knew how to hold posture for aerodynamics and that really does work well here it looks natural i would never have thought that that would be the hard part of casting a superman but it turns out it really does matter and because they cast well with him we never think about it. And here we're really getting a chance to showcase the other major character of this film, Metropolis herself. I really think that Metropolis, or really New York City, is a big part of this Superman movie and when we get to it, the next one. 
once Clark gets to Metropolis, this movie has a totally different feel. But looking at Manhattan in the late 70s, I think that it is a wonderful setting. It's a town that was desperately in need of a Superman. They make no effort to hide the fact that Metropolis is New York. There's even the Statue of Liberty there during this montage. But it really helps root this supernatural film in a reality by putting it in Manhattan. It's even better than Manhattan because newspaper reporters can afford to live in penthouses with balconies. It's incredible. Look at Lois. She's living large. I actually hadn't seen this movie for many, many years. On my second trip to New York, I just happened to be walking down the street and look over and see a globe coming out of a building. And I'm like, oh, this is where Superman was filmed. And I immediately <laughs> ran inside the Daily News building and struck the posture with my hands on my hips and my head to the sky for a photo. Oh, really? This is a real thing that's not a set piece? The globe? No, the Daily News, it is right there in Midtown, and I had a hotel one block past. I had to walk past that globe in the ground with all the clocks around it every day on the way to the subway. Huh. I would have just presumed that was one of the incredible sets that they have built for this, but okay, cool. One of the things coming into the film this time, because this is my first time watching the extended cut. I'm anticipating what's happening because I know what happens in this film. We get so much about Jor-El. You can't interfere with human history. You can't get involved. You just need to be a good example and lead the people, but don't change anything. And obviously this montage, I mean, he saves the president. Air Force One is about to crash, and he saves the president. He has changed history here. But in the extended cut, there's... A scene where he goes back to the Fortress of Solitude, which helped me address some of these concerns I had. Because, yes, this is fun. As a kid, I want to see Superman doing superhero stuff. But, well, he just kind of disregarded everything his father said. But they threw in a scene where he goes back, he talks to computer Jor-El, and Jor-El's, oh, well, this was bound to happen, and they talk about it. I like that, that scene. It's one of the few extra scenes that I feel helps the cut be a little bit better at storytelling and show what Superman's going through, coming to terms with his powers. I don't like that he goes to hug Hollow Graham Jor-El at the end of the scene, but I like the discussion they have. It seems like this movie really is building up the idea that Brando is this overwhelming presence in Superman's life. That Superman is maybe the biggest thing on Earth, but even he looks up to somebody, and it's Marlon Brando. And that's not a feeling I have for any of the other sequels. I guess because, as you said, he's not going to be in the next couple movies. But it's too bad they weren't able to carry that through. I do feel like if you're going to pay him the money, and if you're going to build him up with that prologue on Krypton, you really should have had more of him here in the Fortress of Solitude. Just wait till next week. We will definitely talk about it. <laughs> but as for this scene, I can see why it was cut. It's in an unfortunate spot in the extended cut, and it's where it needed to be. It's after the montage. I like how it answers certain questions. The biggest question it answers is... Why does he even bother with a secret identity? It's Jorel who says, keep a secret identity. First of all, the people will abuse your kindness. Second of all, you can't save people 24 hours a day. And third of all, they're going to find the only way to hurt you is through your loved ones. So you have to keep secret who your loved ones are. It's something that... I think comic book fans take as a given. Of course, that's why you have a secret identity. But this was the first big superhero film. It needed to be said. And this is the scene where it was said. Except it didn't show up. Yeah, that said, apparently audiences had no trouble without this scene. And 
it does kill momentum. It is a nice scene, but I think it should have happened in a different way. Maybe during the space school, they could have just inserted some of that dialogue because we need to keep going with the Superman Lois story, and this feels like an inserted cutscene. It does not feel like an organic part of this movie. And I would just say, as someone that hasn't seen this scene at all, but would like to, I feel like a lot of big overwhelming questions that audiences may be asking about what a Superman is do get answered in a different way here with Kidder. She gets the big interview. She gets the scoop that Perry White, their editor, is claiming that he wants exclusive rights to the Superman story and he uses Lois as bait. And so they set up, uh, well, I guess it's supposed to be a Q&A, but it really turns into a love scene. How could it not when you're asking a man with x-ray vision what color underwear you're wearing? <laughs> Isn't that the temptation? Like, if a man had x-ray vision, he's going to just be checking out everyone naked. But no, it's here the woman's tempting him. And she's even in this garden setting on the balcony. It's almost like Adam and Eve here. The woman tempting the man to become unpure and look at her pink underwear. But it's a cute scene. Yeah, it's not asking what color of underwear she's wearing that is the problem. That's a test. Asking if he likes the color of underwear (laughs) she's wearing. That's the flirtation. Right. But we find out about the lead thing. They haven't introduced the idea that Superman can't see through lead. I don't know why that is, but he has a weakness. We find it out here. It's not just that it's Lois. It's that he can't see through her planner. Stuart, have you ever had an x-ray? I have not. Oh, okay. I have broken bones. And when you get an x-ray, all the people around you put on lead shields so the radiation doesn't hurt them. He has x-ray vision. Oh, true that. And yes, I guess I have had, like, teeth x-rays where they put that heavy thing on your chest. Yes, that makes sense. It's a good scene. It incorporates story points in a very organic way. I like their flirtation. This scene brings me over to Margot Kidder in a way the previous scenes had not. I kind of like her flirty here. She is still brassy. She's still getting the interview, but she's also a bit love struck. And maybe what he sees in her is that she's in love with him. Sometimes that's all it takes. Unfortunately, it ends with her bad poetry. Wow. Can you read my mind? Do you know how much I hate this scene? Even as a kid, this is like, if I knew how to use the damn remote as a five-year-old, I would have been forwarding through this. This is where I get up, go get another cookie, go to the bathroom, hated this, still hate it. Yeah, it's embarrassing. It really is the worst scene in the movie, easily. And it's not because it's mushy. It's not because it's taking away from the action. It's literally because this woman has been given a sheet of music and because she doesn't have the voice for it, it's just kind of rapping it. It's just awful. (laughs) Yeah, they did want it sung. It was intended to be sung. This was supposed to be a musical interlude of Can You Read My Mind? And Kidder couldn't pull it off, so it's Can You Read My Mind? The worst part is just the bad rhymes. Which would be fine in a song, but because she's saying them it makes her sound childish is it awful that the whole time i kept rewriting her lyrics i was like can you find my mind <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah i had trouble giving up the backstory of margot kidder and this scene again painfully reminds me that she's not well This needed to be cut. It really did. I love the flying scene. I don't understand why he drops her. Is it a fooled you moment? But, I mean, he's Superman. He should know not to let go. 
Well, he didn't drop her. What he was doing was allowing her the freedom to stretch out. You know, she was so scared and she finally was allowing herself to feel like she was flying. I thought that was kind of nice. And then, of course, she gets over her head as she's wont to do. She's Lois Lane. She thinks she can do everything. And I like everything about the scene except the voiceover stuff. But that stuff is deadly. It just kills the mood. I do know there's a shorter cut of the film when this was originally released on VHS. The theatrical cut was too long to fit on a videotape then. (laughs) I do wonder if they cut this out. I honestly don't have a whole lot of memory of it from my childhood. but Oh, I I remember it. I did not have the edited VHS version of this because I remember this painfully as a child. This was and is bad. And looking at this movie so far, I was honestly surprised for the first 90 minutes how much I liked this movie. And then can you read my mind? And I'm just like, it's toxic. Yes, that's the perfect word. Yeah. In any version, do they have a sung version of it? No, not that I've seen. Not that I read about. They said that they took her in. Richard Donner said it's not that she didn't have the voice for it. I just didn't like a song there. Personally, I've heard Margot Kidder speak, and I cannot imagine, can you read my mind? I mean, honestly, Miss Piggy would hit the more notes right. I'm getting Gargamel out of her, yes. It's the wrong choice. But this movie has been many things now. It's been a love story. It's been an origin story. It's had biblical illusions and psychedelic trippiness. But the one thing it has not given me is a villain. And finally, 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 in the last half hour of this two-hour epic, they focus in on Lex Luthor. Is there anything in these extended cuts that gives him more of a part in this story? Well, to be fair, he's been omnipresent. Before the montage, when Clark first arrives in Metropolis, Lex is there. We are introduced to Lex, Otis, and Miss Tessmacher. Yes, in the three-hour cut, there's a lot more of Otis and Lex bickering with each other. But I don't think there's anything that makes him more integral. He stays underground until it's time to launch the missiles. His plot is what it is, and they don't come into confrontation until the last 30, 45 minutes of the film. Before that, it is all set up. And Gene Hackman... What an amazing, amazing performance he gives here. He wasn't really known for comedy at this point. I mean, yeah, there was Young Frankenstein, but he is so funny here. And holding his own with him is Ned Beatty, who performs the role of an idiot so well that I could think of him as nothing but until I saw Deliverance in my 20s. I was about to say, this is not the role that Ned Beatty is really known for, but he is really good here, I'll give you that. And Gene Hackman is even better. You're absolutely right. These are fun characters. I wish that they could have been more integrated into the story, but this is not a villain story. This is not what we typically get with superhero movies, where it's 25% hero and 75% villain. They didn't think in 1978 that people wanted to pay to see a movie called Superman and to get a Lex Luthor movie. So he's relegated to the end here, but I do like him and I wish that there was more of him to enjoy. He's so much fun here with his changing wigs and his dastardly plans. They're not wrong with that assumption. We didn't like that 75% moment in that last film. (laughs) We're happy to see some Superman now. I think part of the problem is, again, Superman, God, basically, okay? 
Yeah. Can you really have a villain antagonizing him throughout the film, especially when it's just a human like Lex Luthor? I, you watch Super Friends, Stuart. You've probably seen Lex Luthor in his purple and green spacesuit. That's yeah. the only way he could stand up to Superman. You know, if he's just going to be a regular greatest criminal mind of the 20th century here, I think that is a problem. You can't have him continually facing Superman. He's going to have to be lurking in the background, coming up with a bigger plan that can't get revealed to the end because that's got to be the climax. Because once Superman shows up, he's just a human. It's not going to be much of a contest. Add to that what I said earlier, they only had Hackman for two weeks. And they had to fit him into two films. Yeah, for two films, they had two weeks. So I'm surprised we get as much Hackman as we do knowing that, and that it wasn't he sits in the lair and sends Otis and Tessmacher out to do all the errands while he sits back home. Yeah. But it's a really neat set. I love the fact that they've got a Park Avenue address underneath the city. All of this is really cool. What I never noticed about this set until this viewing is it's Grand Central Station underground. The architecture, the signs, it is a perfect replica. Yeah, it's really neat. This has always been the coolest layer to me. Just, you know, he's got all the computers and all the booby traps. We see him push a cop into a subway earlier on with a trap door. He's got a pool in there. I don't know if that's sewer water, but like... As a kid, I'm like, dude, I want that pool. I want an underground subway pool. It was the coolest thing ever. What more could anyone want? Well, Miss Tessmacher, maybe. You know, why is she here? She's sort of the third wheel I don't entirely get. If I could go with Otis, the doofus, the supposed genius would keep around, why not keep a chick that likes bad boys around? This is just a ragtag group of villains, and this is who Lex has been able to round up. I don't know. I never really questioned her being involved. She's not sleeping with him, though, right? I mean, they're not a couple. Oh, they are. They're boyfriend-girlfriend. Lex Luthor and Miss Tessmacher are an item. Yes. I get none of that here. Oh, I totally get that. Jacob, what about you? I mean, I think it's just apparent that she is his girlfriend. And she says, why can't I get it on with the good guys? Because she's getting it on with the bad guy in the bad wig. I never took it as a big, hot, romantic fling. But yeah, I mean, she stuck around. She's one of those chicks that always gets involved with the bad boy. And here's the bad boy, Lex Luthor. I always took them as an item, and in the three-hour extended cut, you actually get to see her hang off of him while he plays the piano like Liberace. And she asks, why is it that I am so attracted to you? And he says, because I make your life interesting. Ah, that would help. I guess it's because I rarely feel like they're even in the same shot together, and she's so clearly disinterested in it all. I feel like she's there for the money, that she is a gold digger that's kind of hanging out, waiting for her share, that she believes this guy is got a plan that's going to make a lot of money, whatever it's going to be. She's invested in Costa del Lex. She's bought into the timeshare. She's trapped yeah. for... A 14-year contract, that's why she's sticking around. But the plot is basically, Luther is going to turn California into sea property. I mean, this is something that's always said about L.A., California, that we're just one quake away from falling off the map and no one will ever see us again. And indeed, there is a San Andreas fault. There is quite a potential to have another devastating disaster to our coastline. But this is a crazy plot, right? Look, he's the greatest criminal genius mind of the 20th century. You just can't think at his level, Stuart. Indeed, I can't. But I love the plot. I mean, I'm not saying don't read it as distaste as an adult. I just think it's crazy that they've made the plot so silly. After starting a movie with such epic biblical qualities to end here with this kind of craziness, yeah, they've really juggled a lot of tones. I want to applaud Richard Donner for really being able to keep this whole project afloat because, man, he's just 
got a lot of hats on here. There's a lot of things to juggle and a lot of different moods and vibes. And I think more things work than don't. I will say a lot of this comedy here with this Lex Luthor, Otis stuff, I remember coming into the series thinking Superman 3 is a blight on the franchise. Why did they take this serious comic book movie and turn it into a Richard Pryor comedy? Now, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Maybe I'll still think that in two weeks. But here, I see the seeds of what could grow into a Richard Pryor weed. Well, I think these films always have those CG. In 89, Burton's Batman, which seems pretty dark by the time you see those seeds with the aesthetic that can grow into Batman and Robin. I think there's always those seeds. And once we get that stinker, we're always able to look back and notice them. One of the things I like about this plot, it's not to take over the world. It's not to defeat Superman. This is a plan he already had in action. It's totally inconsequential to Superman. He was going to sink California and become a rich landowner. And Superman just became a thorn in his side, something that happened to pop up that he's got to take care of. Now, I I like that he's not this mustache-twirling villain. He just wants to get rich. He just wants his slice of the pie. I like that, too. I don't know exactly how much irradiated land is going to sell for after he nukes it, but... Perhaps he has the same uh, fluids that they used in A Good Day to Die Hard. Or Mole Men, for that matter. (laughs) But it's... Definitely an intriguing plot. What I never understood, and it isn't until I read about this three-hour cut, is why he would launch two missiles, though. Because he launches one at the fault. I can't wait for you to explain this one to me. I don't understand it myself, even now. I always thought it was so Superman had double jeopardy. He says that, double jeopardy, Superman. I always thought that was part of the plot once Superman came into it, launched them in opposite directions, make Superman choose. I always assume that, too. That doesn't make any sense, though, because he thought Superman was drowning in his pool. Right. So why would he send this off? It turns out the one going to New Jersey is all Otis's screw-up. There's that scene in both of the cuts that I watched where Otis has to program in coordinates, and he programs in the wrong coordinates the first time, and so they have to go and find another missile and program in the coordinates again. In the three-hour cut is where Miss Tessmacher spells out there's two missile launches going on simultaneously, conveniently enough, and so they can just reprogram the second missile, the first one that Luther doesn't care about, Lex accidentally programmed to go to New Jersey instead of the fault line. Mm, Yeah, that's a lot of excess wordage to have this kind of setup. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of logistical sequential sense. If you thought you beat Superman, you wouldn't need to conflict his interest by having two missiles. But maybe he just knew deep in his heart that Superman would find a way to take off the kryptonite meteorite hanging on his chest like a pimp chain. Really, one line of ADR dialogue could have fixed all of it when they cut this elongated scene explaining it, but Hackman's time was up. No ADR for him. Mm. Was there ever a scene explaining how they even came about finding the kryptonite? I know that there is this scene in the library where they talk about, oh, it must have fallen in a meteorite in Ethiopia and we're going to go steal it. But how did they know what properties it would have and why it would negatively impact Superman? I don't understand why kryptonite is presumed to be his Achilles heel. You must have zoned out because it's all just set in exposition. It's exposition, blah, blah, blah. If you're going to ask why, replay the scene of Lex in the library. <laughs> if you... That's the only scene? That's the only scene. Okay, I think this, for me, this movie plays better when I don't stop and ask why, then. <laughs> it's in there, though. In one of the cuts, even if it's the three-hour cut, 
everything you could ask why is explained. But even in the basic theatrical cut, it's in there. You just gotta pay attention, and sometimes that's hard to do because they're just throwing out a lot of exposition to explain this stuff away pretty damn quick. I mean, the Otis programming the missile wrong is there if you catch that the second missile they program isn't the same as the first missile, which may be hard because I'm pretty sure it's the same prop. They show up in a different truck, different outfits. That's the only way I got that it was a different missile. Major Nelson from I Dream of Genie was at one and not the other, but Superman does get captured, and as Jacob alluded to, there is more in the extended cut where Lex tests his powers. He shoots him with machine guns, freezes him with ice, burns him with flamethrower. Yeah, I can't believe that wouldn't be in the theatrical cut, that talking about the film last week where most of what Superman does is stand there while bullets bounce off of him. You always want to show off his powers. That's the fun of Superman. And here it's only a couple minutes at the most. You're seeing bullets bounce off of him, fire surround him. He gets frozen and breaks through the ice. It's a fun little scene demonstrating his powers. It's nice to show him as completely invincible right before he loses. It sets him up as nothing can ever stop him. And then he loses. And it comes right after that horrible, I'm going to twirl like I'm on the disco and become a drill into the sidewalk. The one use of powers that I just don't like it. His feet aren't sharp. He couldn't lift up a manhole and now there's just another pothole in New York City. But then, yeah, he has to capture the missiles. The effects here, when they try to go big, is where this doesn't work out so well for me. His flying scenes with the missiles... It looks okay. All I could think of was that Atari 2600 game, though, where you're Superman and dodging missiles. Oh, wait till Superman 3, then. (laughs) And then the other missile hits because Superman isn't fast enough. We're going to talk about exactly how fast Superman can be in about five minutes. But he's not fast enough to capture that missile. And so a train set gets wrecked. Yeah, these miniatures. I was able to go with the miniatures on Krypton because there's not a real Krypton. But (laughs) these miniatures, these are bad. When there's that dam bursting and the flood and someone drops some sand in front of the water that they poured out of a cup, it does not look good. I like miniatures. I always like miniatures. I like practical effects. I'm with these scenes. Oh, pshaw. Digital isn't everything. I think that some of this works okay, and then some of it less so. But it was always the fun stuff back in this day. You know, watching a disaster movie, these were the things you live for, is when stuff breaks down and you see mass chaos and trains derailing. The thing that's new here, after a decade of having destruction be popular, is that there's one man that can fix it all. That Superman can serve as the fallen train tracks and the train can keep on going i think all that stuff is fun i love that i like how this movie escalates superman's powers when it first starts we just see him lifting a car we see him kicking a football and it keeps going until he flies after the space academy but then it still continues to escalate throughout the entire movie he's fixing an airplane okay how are you going to top that how are you going to top what lex did to him in the cut scene of all those tests you have him fly into the earth and lift the continent i think that's a great escalation and it adds believability by slowly ramping up. If the very first thing he did was a tremendous use of powers, you would not appreciate it as much 
the rest of the movie. Yeah, if it took him 12 years to learn how to finally fly, I like that, again, this is a journey of discovery for Superman. This is an epic. He's not going to know everything right away. We're going to see him having to think on the, no pun intended, fly and figure out how to solve problems and learn what his real abilities are. I like that we do see this evolution throughout the film. Yeah, and I love that practical shot. It may be my favorite shot in the whole movie when he goes into the Earth. There's something about the way it's filmed. It's quite a delight to see him messing around in the rocks and magma. I didn't see any Mole Man. (laughs) He didn't go deep enough. There's a lot more of these scenes in the three-hour cut, so maybe there's some Mole Man in there. But save the entire continent, though he does, Lois dies. This scene scared the hell out of me as a kid. And I have this fear of being buried alive. It's a rational one. I think it's because of this scene. This is hard to watch. The way the dirt falls into her mouth as she's swallowed up into the earth. This scared me as a kid. And I think it gave me this fear. Like, it still gives me the shakes watching it now. Yeah, no, it's not a childhood fear. This is a hard scene. This is a really hard death to watch for any character. That it's lowest makes it even tougher. But she doesn't just suffocate. She doesn't just get buried. She's being crushed. The ground is moving and the car is being smashed together. It's like a night nexus of things that are happening to her. It's highly upsetting now and then. It's brutal and bold. I can't believe that they would dare to do this. This was quite a thing. That said, as powerful as the scene is, the way that they write it off, maybe, I'm going to just say, the worst thing this entire series will ever do. I can't imagine (laughs) anything that happens in Steel or Supergirl will be as annoying as Christopher Reeve deciding he can wind back time like a clock by reversing the direction of our rotation. I think this scene has become a bit of a joke. I mean, as a kid, totally went with it, totally bought it. Now, as I try to figure out the physics of how this works, I don't get it. And it's one of those things I'm just going to have to go along with it because I don't think it makes sense. Well, I'm with you, Jacob. As a kid, I just went with it. And Stuart, I think in second grade, we had a conversation. Oh, yes, absolutely. If you could fly that fast, this would turn back time. It may have inspired a share song, too. But (laughs) I actually did quiz a physicist online. What would happen if the Earth's rotation (laughs) suddenly reversed? What he told me is we're spinning, if you're at the equator, at about 2,000 miles an hour. If the Earth were to stop, you would keep moving at 2,000 miles an hour. If the Earth were to go the other way, it would forcibly tear itself apart, and we would all end up like Krypton. (laughs) perhaps superman did something with his mask to change gravity to keep everyone there keep it together he is superman maybe he used the big cellophane yellow s we'll talk about that next week (laughs) get that next week it isn't the physics of this because i don't need this movie and nothing this movie has done has told me it is scientifically accurate It is the idea that once you introduce that he can undo any terrible thing that has happened, it now makes you wonder why anything bad would ever happen and why he doesn't do this every time. Be late to the fire. Don't worry about the kid falling off the dam. We'll fix it later. We'll do it in post. I'll just flip the world back and it'll all be fine. It's really the fact that they introduced such a glaring dust ex machina that I know they wanted to make him seem like God, that he can do anything, but maybe they should have stopped short of actually doing this. The problem is, it's too damn easy. There's no cost. There's no negative effect to turning back time. He has no sacrifice in doing so. 
and it does create this situation where no matter what happens, what are the stakes? You can't kill Superman, and Superman can turn back time. I think this is what the stakes are. This is a man with two fathers. One saying, don't get involved with human affairs. One saying, you've been given these powers to do something special. You've been sent here for a reason. And I think one of the great aspects of Superman that have been played up in the comics is that his story is the ultimate story of the immigrant coming to America, the land of opportunity. He comes from this dying world and he's got to choose between his two fathers, his two worlds now. Does he go with his father and he accepts this death and destruction or does he go with his adopted father who had that powerful death scene where he said i wish i could have stopped this and this is my purpose i don't know jacob why doesn't he just revolve around the world and bring that guy back to life and ask him <laughs> I don't know the exact physics of spinning the world around. I don't know if it's bringing everyone to life. I don't know if Lois is still alive because now the car didn't get crushed. Jimmy's pissed off. Superman, you left me there with rattlesnakes, so Superman saved Jimmy from the dam at some point, and he remembers that. I wish this played out better because I think this is what the core of Superman is. This revolving the world around as the solution's a bad solution. I wish there was a better one. I'm not arguing that. I'm saying there's a symbolic gesture here to what Superman Superman's about, it's too bad this climax overshadows that and makes it confusing and muddled. I will say this, though. If it's any consolation, and it's probably not because it's a stupid idea, but it was always in the vision that this is how the Superman duology would end. This is the ending from Superman 2, the turning back the Earth. That the plan was he would turn it back at the end of two. Then they realized, well, crap, we've lost our money. There might not ever be a two. Let's kill Lois and have him do it here to bring her back. It's a <laughs> lot better reason here than they would have done it for in two. Because in two, yeah, it was to make her forget and to repair the Washington Monument. But <laughs> So if this was going to be held off, California still was destroyed. Lois was still dead at the end of this film. No, he fixed California, and the problem was Lois wasn't part of the climax at all. Oh, okay. And so to make her part of the climax, they killed her. They wrote this whole thing that she was investigating the land deals with the Native American that... I think she was in trouble out there, but it just never played. She was in about as much trouble as Jimmy. Okay, well, regardless, you're right, Jacob. What it does, for whatever its failings, as a narrative device, it's lazy, it's stupid, it wouldn't happen. It has finally turned Superman into a god figure. The story, as I see it now, a religious parable, he has finally become Space Jesus. He has finally become his destiny. It is an origin story, and he is now what they promised he would be. So in that sense, and maybe in only that sense, the ending works. He's larger than a man in every possible way. Even death can't take him. I think it's just become the crux for geek conversations like the one we've just had that have persisted <laughs> from 1978 and will continue to persist for as long as this movie is relevant. We'll talk more, though, about how if it would have been better placed in Superman 2 next week. Well, if you didn't like this climax, Stuart, with turning the world around, I do find it kind of weird. He just kind of shows up at the prison with Otis and Luther. Here you go. Here's your bad guys. And no Tessmacher. Well, what happened to Tessmacher? Is it a thought crime that Lex Luthor has committed? If you don't actually blow up California with nukes, can you be prosecuted for it? It's attempted murder. He reprogrammed the nukes. I think right there, that's some kind of... Yeah, okay. I doubt if I'm getting off on a technicality if I break into a naval base and reprogram a missile. 
Good point. I also think that there's probably some misappropriation of public property living under Park Avenue. (laughs) He has killed cops. We see him kill a cop at the beginning. And he's wanted anyway. I mean, the cops were after him because he's a wanted criminal, and they just didn't know where he was. So, Arnie, I have a question, because I was not able to find this cutscene. Stuart, you ask about what happened to Tessmacher. I read that she gets thrown to the lions by Lex, I guess, punishment for freeing Superman. Have you seen this? Because this sounds awful. It is in the three-hour cut, and it is actually on this Blu-ray box set. In addition to restoring scenes, there's still another thing called additional scenes, which is not the full three hours, but it does include the scene I talked about earlier, where Lex is playing the piano, and Tess Mocker is hanging off of him. Well, where's Otis while this is happening? Otis is feeding the babies. I don't know what the babies are. They sound like jaguars or panthers. We never see the babies, but a side of beef is being lowered on a chain to the babies. Well, in a scene after Superman turns the world back around, we see as punishment for freeing Superman, Miss Tessmacher is being lowered down by Otis to the babies. And she's begging for her life, and Otis doesn't want to be doing it, but Lex is getting his vengeance. And we hear the animals roar, and then suddenly flying up from the baby's pit is Superman saving Tessmacher. Because we never see the babies, it plays okay. It really does. It's nowhere near as bad as the descriptions online make it sound. Well, and the fact that they don't kill her, I mean, I think that would be a particularly dark cloud to throw in here in a movie that is largely avoided. This is what? PG movie? Maybe G rated? PG. I just don't feel like you'd want to introduce this character. She's not the one we'd want to see eaten by wild animals. Plus, they'd already filmed scenes with her and Hackman for the next one, so you can't kill her. You can't get Hackman back to refilm him without her. She's in the next movie? Yep. Well, we'll guess we'll get there next week. I do want to say one last thing, though. For all the troubled production, and this was troubled, they ran out of money, things got really ugly between Donner and the Salkins, it went public, Donner got fired from the sequel, but... This movie did one other thing to really predate his superhero brother, Batman. The original marketing concept for this was just going to be a poster with the big S symbol, and that was that. Oh, wow, yeah. It was deemed too sophisticated, is the term they used. Nobody knew what they were talking about, and they actually thought it was ads just for a comic book. So they quickly scrapped that idea, put Brando and Hackman up on a poster together, and said, you will believe a man can fly. And it broke box office records and worked its way into history. How different times were that, you know, comic books might actually advertise. People would mistake it as a comic book ad. (laughs) I find that funny. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Superman? Jacob. Look, I already said this held its spot as the number one superhero film for me, comic book film for me, until... The Dark Knight. And I'm going to stand by that. This film, the effects might be a little dated. I don't think the plotting is 100% perfect. There are flaws. It's spinning the world around. Can you read my mind? That, that's yeah, ugh, there you go. a killer. But there's so many more strengths here. I mean, Christopher Reeve, amazing. It's been a year or two since I've watched this last. And man, I just watching his acting, his comedic timing, the way he changes between Clark and Superman. He is Superman for me. This is really an experience. I watched this film. Yes, the storytelling not 100% perfect. There's these bad things, but this is an experience. Stuart, you call this an epic, you know, this mythical space Jesus biblical epic. And that's how I feel. It's not a perfect 
story, but as an experience going from space to Kansas to Metropolis, seeing this person grow from a baby to a god. It is an experience, and I stand in awe. It's a long film, but it doesn't seem long. Yes, the minutes are high, but I never feel bored. As a child, I never felt bored watching this, and I still feel that way now. It holds up pretty damn well. That's, I think, what surprised me the most is that it was such a different storytelling time then. The aesthetic, everything back in the 70s. Watching this today, this is how a Superman movie should feel. I should feel in awe. I should feel wonder with this character. Watching this god fly and lift up faults underground. And I still feel that today. High, high recommend. Stuart. Yeah, a relief that I'm coming back and discovering that I was completely wrong as a kid. This is a very good movie, and I really enjoyed it for its old-fashioned qualities. Not because it's long, not because it's slow and has weird jumps and does all of the things that it does, but because of them. It really makes it feel special. I don't think they'll ever try to make a superhero movie quite like this again. It would just be seen as too corny, too uneventful, too not driven by action, and by the villains, which have become the real stars of superhero movies. But this is a story about myth and a Superman, and they have delivered that. I don't know that this will be the favorite in the series, but I think it's a strong effort, and I think that, yeah, it starts... I almost said it started this retrospective in a good way, but I forgot about Mole Men. Let's all forget (laughs) about Mole Men. This is where you want to begin, and it's a great way to begin. So, strong recommend for me. I could argue that Superhero films have stayed about the villain. Can you even tell me who the villain was in Iron Man 1? You have to think about it, but I see your point. I agree with what both of you have said, that this film is very good. It does so many things right, but some of the things, Stuart, you just cited that make it special, I think only make it special to me because I grew up with this film. Watching it this time, I was just flooded with nostalgia and the strong performances, and how much I loved the exploration of Superman. But, to be perfectly honest, the film is meandering. It lacks a strong villain. William's score, tremendous score. It aids things greatly. But there are a lot of pacing problems. And if you didn't grow up with this film, I truthfully wonder if you wouldn't just be bored out of your freaking mind for the first 30 60, 90 minutes. Especially since Superman's backstory, because of this movie, is so much in the cultural lexicon that it's going to end up telling you things you already know. You don't need to spend 90 minutes telling me about Space College. You really don't anymore. But, to me, despite the dated effects, you take the score, you take the emotion, you take Reeves' earnest performance. This film, to me, is as fresh as the day it was released. It is wondrous and wonderful. I love this movie. I'm going to recommend this movie, but I'm going to do so with the caveat that I think a lot of people are just going to be bored out of their gourd watching this. And I think that it just suffers from the burden of the origin story. We've talked about it so many times, how hard it is to tell an origin story, but also give the hero something worthwhile to do. And here, yeah, it is almost like a biblical epic in that it's a tale of one person's journey, but it doesn't have an arc that's fulfilling. At no point does Superman do something where you feel he's really overcoming At no point does Superman feel in danger. 
These are things that will be fixed in a future film. So it's a recommend from me, but I know, I know for a fact that it's not going to be my highest recommend of the series. Maybe my second, but hey, we have Steel, so it's not going to be my highest recommend of the series. <laughs> yeah, all this praise for Christopher Reeve, we all know Shaquille O'Neal is the best Superman. Is he really playing Superman? Is this really a Superman movie? I got so confused. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. You have to wait a few weeks or a couple months, but we will get there. All right. I will be patient. (laughs) So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me to discuss Superman. We will be back next week with Superman 2. In the meantime, don't forget, more zombies eating brains. Yeah, we got our donation series right now. We got to pay for our bandwidth. We got to, you know, this costs money. So over on our donation series right now, we got the Evil Dead. Hell to the King, baby. We're getting to Army of Darkness. But you donate $10, you're going to get all the Raimi Evil Dead films plus the remake. For a donation of $25 or more, we're going to be doing the Return of the Living Dead series. Uh, there's five of them. I'm not sure. A couple of them are too real. And then as an added bonus, we're also going to be doing 28 Days and 28 Weeks Later. And then the biggest budget zombie movie to date, World War Z starring Brad Pitt. And everyone's going to get that. That's sort of the capper to this whole zombie-a-thon. If you donate $10, you get Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, New Evil Dead, and World War Z. The gold-level donors, they get the seven other movies, five Return of the Living Dead, two 28 days, weeks later. It's zombie madness all the way until June. I'm really looking forward to it. We got a lot of fun, a lot of brains, and a lot of splatter ahead of us. You can find out all the details by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage, nowplayingpodcast.com. And in fact, if you want to hear our previous retrospective series, which are all locked up, if you want to hear Night of the Living Dead, the first time we really talked about zombies, I've got a very small stack of our fifth anniversary DVD ROMs sitting here, and when they are gone, they are gone. It is a separate donation. You can find the details at nowplayingpodcast.com. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you again for joining me. We will be back next week with Superman 2. So, up, up, and away. I have to leave. I knew this time would come. We both knew it from the day we found you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. The virtuous spirit has no need for thankful approval. Only the certain conviction that what has been done is right. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Superman movie, leading up to this summer's Man of Steel. Again, again! Superman's bad. He was bad. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear reviews of comic book movies such as all the Batman films, Green Lantern, Catwoman, the Marvel Avengers films, and many more. You've come a long way since the old neighborhood. You can also hear our reviews of non-comic-based films, including Star Trek, Predator, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. I never thought this thing would go the distance. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Now, this is a very special place for me. I wanted you to see it. 
while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Let's go to my place. Maybe I should change first. You can also follow Now Playing at Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Why am I not reading it? The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Superman will be there on Wednesday, all right? The city of Metropolis is generous to a fault. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Don't tell me. He sends a check every week to his sweet gray-haired old mother. Actually, she's silver-haired. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Now come on, lady, hand it over. That's a bad outfit! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties. Do you like pink? Coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. They have a wide selection. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. What more could anyone ask? A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now we're cooking, huh? Now Playing's Superman retrospective series is edited by Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. Your suffering will be short. Mine, forever. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures. Superman is the property of DC Comics and Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. The dude of steel. (laughs) Where are you going to get it? The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Why do you say this to me? When you know I will kill you for it. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Well, I guess I'd better be going too. So I'll be going. Bye. See you later. As she falls and she says her classic, You've got me! Who's got you? And <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that was Wonder It's a great Margot Kidder impersonation. <laughs> is that from when she's in the backyard? It's just as husky and throaty and deep voiced as she is. <laughs> Oh, yes. Well, anyway, I may not succeed with that, but I can probably do a better Margot Kidder than Margot Kidder can at this point. Today we are talking about Superman, starring Christopher Harreve, Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman, Margot Kidder, directed by Richard Donner. Did that work at all? Yeah, it was pretty much in tune. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it wasn't like a a bloody Christmas carol, but... (laughs) (laughs) It's a great score. Can you say that without a yawn? Yeah. I like how it answers certain questions. The biggest question it answers is, how tired is Stuart? (laughs) No, the biggest question it (laughs) answers... I tried to do it quietly. Am I boring you, sir? (laughs) 
<laughs> you, you sound like Brando. <laughs> Here on Krypton. <laughs> or anything else? Um, no. Thing. Um, hold on, I got a problem. Oh, oh, yes, I do. I do. I think I do, too. Hold on one second. Yeah. I have a problem. Let's see if that solved my problem. Problem solved. Okay. I was running out of hard drive space. I wouldn't have been able to continue recording. Okay. Um, You're out of hard drive space? We haven't been recording that long. <laughs> and for a donation of $25 or more, we're going to throw on Night of the Living Dead. No. <laughs> Return of the Living Dead. Better. <laughs> <laughs> what movies have you been watching? Oh, uh, it is a distant Those movie. should be interesting conversations. They, 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 I got most of the words right. Did, just the first one did, was wrong. You did. <laughs>